Welcome to the podcast series, Who's Who in Emergency Medicine. This will be a monthly podcast where we get to know some of the leading figures in academic emergency medicine. So join us in this session, and we hope you enjoy. For everyone joining us today, my name is Tina, currently a PGY3 at Mount Sinai, and it is my honor to be here today with Dr. William Stern, who is the creator and author of the popular website, emupdates.com. I'm not going to steal your thunder. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about just your background, home, medical school? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to, to participate. I am actually a Texan uh, and did all my schooling in Texas and then decided to go to do residency in Montreal at McGill, which was really cool and really fun. And that seems like a long time ago now because it was uh, a long time ago and finished many years ago now. And with the Sinai, at Mount Sinai, the Upper East Side in Manhattan for a number of years. Um, then decided that I wanted to um, break, so I left and uh, per diem for a few years, which was really cool. I really enjoyed the sort of per diem lifestyle. At that time, I was just picking up shifts at Elmer's Hospital, which is one of the Sinai affiliates, and I got involved in NYU and started splitting my time between Elmer's and NYU in a totally per diem capacity, which again was really great. I even then transitioned to nights. I really loved that as well. I was like a nocturnist, Korean nocturnist for a while, and that was just really great. And I totally choose my own schedule and just do my own thing, and I really liked that. And then one day I um, came home from in between two night shifts, and I went to bed around 8.30 or 9 as usual a.m. And then at like 11 a.m. or something, an hour and a half, two hours after I got to bed, I just woke up and I wasn't tired at all. I just was like lying there looking at the ceiling and didn't totally know what to do because I had to be back at work, you know, for the night shift that night. But I wasn't tired and I'd only slept for like an hour and a half. So I was like, okay, whatever. This is a one off and made it through that night and went home the next morning. So got home again around nine or something to bed. And an hour later, I was not tired at all. And I realized that this was a problem. And so I decided then that I needed to transition away from nocturnalism. And right around that time, the good folks at Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn expressed some interest in me, and uh, we had a couple of meetings. And turned out that our goals were aligned, and so I rejoined the full-time emergency physician world, and I'm now part-time administrator, part-time clinician, and a full-time gig at, at my level, which has been really great. How do you feel about, I guess, transitioning between, like, for DM and the time and the, the freedom that I'm My path has been a little bit unusual. Most people, when they think about per diem, they think about the big staffing agencies and where you they just sort of send you all over the place and you're just doing random per diems in random places for a staffing agency, usually in the sort of community type gig, which is very different than what I did. And I, I can't really comment on what that lifestyle is like. It sounds fun, but it's different than what I did. So I established myself as an academic doc 
and then I transitioned to programming in sort of the same environment that I was already in, the academic institutions that I was working in already. And so I was in an academic role, uh, clinically supervising trainees, but I was functioning in a per diem scheduled model. And at the same time, I was also carrying out a lot of non-clinical work, so doing a ton of non-clinical work, which is cool in the sense that I could totally make my own schedule and I could do it. No one had any authority or interest to tell me what to do. I had no deliverables to anyone because I had no real boss. At the same time, I was still doing a ton of non-clinical work, speaking, reading, writing, doing some research, and I wasn't even paying for it. There's no way to be paid for it in a per diem model. So, so that wasn't sustainable. Now I'm able to do a lot of the same extra clinical work that I was doing, plus I do some work for my department and clinical work in a salary capacity, which is great. So I am now being paid to do the work that I was doing on house, which is really fabulous and I feel really lucky. I'm very fortunate to have a boss who values this work, a lot of which doesn't directly benefit the department, although it does benefit the department indirectly, but it's an indirect benefit, and a lot of chairs wouldn't, I don't think, see that value, and I'm quite lucky to have a, a chair that, that does value that type of work, and is going to protect me for it. Do you have any workers who are trained in Canada? Is there one system that you prefer? Is it vastly different? Is it hard? It used to come up a lot, but it doesn't come up that much anymore. So the Indian healthcare system is very different than ours and vastly better. It's a vastly better system for just about everyone. That's not saying a whole lot because American healthcare is just so profoundly broken. It's just such a struggle for all of us, I think, on just a daily basis to try to do the best we can for our patients within a system that is, is so profoundly broken and caters to the needs of its stakeholders rather and its ostensible function, which is to improve the health of Americans. The system is not designed to do that, and so it doesn't do that. The system is designed in America to enrich the stakeholders, and it does a fabulous job of that. And the terrible health consequences and financial consequences for the country and its, and its people. Lots of problems with the single-payer model in Canada as well, but having been there for five years, still have a lot of friends and connections there. Uh, it's just so obvious to anyone who has been in both places for any length of time that you're just so much better off in a single-payer system where everyone's covered. And you don't have to worry constantly about being bankrupted by individuals. So just from a population perspective and healthcare delivery perspective, there's no contest. And I'm a member of Physicians for a National Healthcare Program. And, um, I encourage anyone who thinks this is a better model to get involved with the NHP, and um, they're a great organization that is working to bring that type of model to the United States. There are some individual states that have executed something like a single-payer system, Massachusetts uh, being the most obvious example. Working on it in New York, we'll see how it goes. Uh, fingers crossed. Are you Okay. <laughs> With drums. I guess going off on a different direction, you are the creator and founder of eveupdates.com. Tell us what inspired that and what it takes to 
I've been a little bit of computer geek for my whole life and used to work in, I worked in computer tech support for many years in college and I had like my own homepage, it was called a homepage at that time, I don't know if it means anything to you, you're so much younger than I am, but when the internet was born, um, it was like it became fashionable at some point to like have your own homepage, it was like a very sexy thing to do and uh, gave me a lot of street cred. And when I got into medicine, uh, the real impetus was after I finished residency. So in Canada, you spent you do, it's a five-year residency in emergency medicine. And the fifth year, you basically spend preparing for um, a very difficult licensing exam, the Canadian licensing exam, which at that time at least had a, a very significant fail rate among residents who had finished a five-year residency and had spent an entire year studying for it. And still, there was a significant fail rate. So it was uh, actually an awful uh, experience. Very stressful, uh, many, many months of study, many, many hours per day. Uh, I've never done anything like that. Um, I hope I never do anything like that again. And the way that I did it was I basically summarized Rosen onto 1,400 note cards. It took me nine months to do that. And I did pass the exam. But then I had these 1,400 note cards, which were an awesome resource. Thousands of hours of creating them. Um, I have good handwriting, and I use like different color pens. They're really, they're like really nice. And and I they were just sitting all in these boxes. And what was I going to do with them? Just the notion of like leaving them in the closet or tossing them just seemed terrible. It seemed like a terrible outcome for these note cards that I had slaved over. So I decided to scan them, tag them, and sort of digitize them. We did a home for them, and that's how Theme Updates was born. At the time, there really weren't many, any emergency medicine blogs. And so I just basically posted those 1,400 note cards, and people responded to it. They're like, wow, this is really great. And then I just started like, writing other things on there that I, found useful, and then I started like, pontificating uh, eventually on the site when I developed more expertise. And mostly because there weren't that many options at the time for emergency medicine interested people. This is even really before Twitter became a thing. So people started gravitating towards it because there just weren't very many options. So I kind of got in early, got a foothold, and then uh, continued to make content that people liked. So that's uh, how things got started and, and how it got to where it is today. I, I don't write very much on EM updates. I try to keep the uh, quantity low and the quality high. Formula that's been successful. The return at force. Who came up with that? But, uh, it's, that was just a. I mean, didn't even think about it when I was making it. But it's that is such a, a paradigm in, in our specialty. Like you know, we send so many patients home, and the main message to give those patients is come back and get worse, and that's where the slogan comes from. Do you use Twitter a lot for that as well? So I have a pretty unique relationship with Twitter as, as well. I'm successful on Twitter, if you're counting followers as a metric of success, but I tweet very differently compared to all my colleagues who use Twitter a lot. I mean, I've been on Twitter, I actually have a personal account on Twitter that was one of the first Twitter accounts, the, the um, username was Ruben. My best friend, I also got him, his Twitter account, Elliot, so he's 
Elliot. And I even got my sister at the time, whose name was Rachel. I got her Rachel. She doesn't use it at all, but gets lots of expensive offers to buy it from, from her, which she probably should take someone up on, on one of those offers because uh, she's not really doing much of it. But <laughs> so I have that personal Twitter, which I also don't really use much. But Ducky and Muffin's Twitter been around for many years, and I still only have a few hundred tweets. So same model, low volume, uh, high. I don't even high, high quality. I don't. I don't engage in conversations on Twitter. I've always recognized that Twitter conversations are very limited, and also tend to bring up worse in people. Um, I just have no interest in debating in 140 or 280 characters, and I think that position has borne out to be true. Uh, Twitter now has just turned into like what seems to me to be mostly a flame war, where people who are actually really nice people just bring out their worst selves in on that platform. So I don't use it for conversation. I generally just occasionally will respond to something in a non-controversial uh, forum, but usually use it to point people to uh, resources that I think are valuable or make pithy notes. And again, uh, people respond well to it, so it's the model that I. So, kind of in line with that, you've been like a teacher and a mentor for many years now. What do you think it takes to, to be a good one, to reach out to people and have an effect? I want to go back to one point before that. I don't know if this is going to be editing in any way, but I also want to mention that regarding Twitter, that I consume Twitter in a, in a way that is very different than how everyone else consumes Twitter, which is that uh, even though I still have quote, people, people, people that I quote unquote follow, I actually don't look at my Twitter stream at all, ever. And the way that I, but I still read a ton of Twitter, and the way I do that is using RSS, a platform that a lot of people don't even know about, but it's basically a, it's an aggregating medium where you subscribe to a so-called feed, and then your aggregator collects entries in that feed for you, and then you just sort of check them all at once whenever you want. And so there are ways to turn someone's Twitter stream uh, or uh, their posts into an RSS feed. So do you have a Twitter account? I do. Okay, so what is it? What's your um, username? It's so cheesy. Sorry. I am Tintinelli. Because my name is Tina and Tina's Tintinelli. Okay, wow. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so if I were to, let's say I thought that I need to read everything you have to say, I would turn your uh, posts into an RSS feed. And whenever you posted something, whether it was one post a week or 100 posts a day, it would just accumulate in my aggregator, and then I would just read them all at once. So I would see everything that you write whenever I have time to sit down and look it through all my feeds. And it's just a very different way that most people consume Why do you Twitter. Do because there are a small number of folks who tweet on issues that are important and they have important things to say and I want to know what those things are. There are a lot of folks who tweet constantly and just sort of kibitz on Twitter and I don't look at those. I, I don't follow them in that in, in my aggregator because if you do that you end up with hundred, I mean there are lots of folks in emergency medicine who, who, who tweet 50, 100 times per day. Uh, I, I don't know who would want to read all that. Um, I certainly don't. And so I just uh, I, I follow in the sense of that I just mentioned with this aggregator. I follow actually a fair number of people, but they're low volume 
high quality. And so I, I read everything that they that they write, and I think that allows me to keep up with a lot of what people are talking about without getting into the mess that people get frustrated, really frustrated with Twitter and all the little conversations and nonsense. Read one, do you want to re-ask that question that you asked um, before that I interrupted you with? Yeah. Uh, so you've been doing this teaching and all different aspects of different media for a while now. So what do you think it takes to be a good teacher, mentor, and to actually reach out to people and have a fact? There's three different questions. Be a good teacher is a really, it's a really broad question. It's a little hard to answer. What's worked for me? I've developed few areas of content expertise, so that gives me the confidence to teach authoritatively, which has been very important for me. And some people don't mind that teaching when they're not really expert in the topic. I've never been, I never felt comfortable with that, and I only really want to teach folks in areas that I really feel like I have mastered. So that was the first thing as I became a content expert in a couple of domains. And I just focus my teaching on those domains. And I think what makes me a good teacher is that I'm really focused on the learner, how they're responding to me or how an audience is responding to me. I try to focus on what is working for the person or group that I'm talking to and modify my approach what we're talking about, how we're talking about it, based on not just like the level of the learner or the, the format, but what that person or that group is jiving on at that moment. And, uh, it's, it's just, I think it's, it's a, an innate talent. It's hard for me to say. One thing I've always just noticed about myself is, uh, compared to others, is that I'm speaking to someone who speaks a different language as their primary language and they don't speak English very well. I'm very tuned into that. I'm able to recognize when someone is not understanding me. And when I'm standing next to someone who is speaking to, I often notice things are obvious to me that the person does not understand the person speaking, but the person who's speaking doesn't register that. Always registered that very strongly, like I always recognize when someone doesn't understand me. And uh, firstly, I'm, I'm quite good at speaking to people who don't speak English very well because I know when they don't understand me. That's the thing I know. I feel like I know. And uh, some of that skill, I think, is what translates into teaching. Because, in a sense, you know, what I'm teaching is in a sense like a different language or a new skill set. I think I just am focused on making sure that what I'm saying is being registered. I'm not just trying to hear myself speak, but what I'm saying is landing um, and getting traction in their brain. And that's been it's a skill that I have. I'm sure it can be cultivated. I think what maybe how I have a leg up on some of my peers as, as a teacher is that it, that's what I focus on is what's landing in the learners' minds. Do you find then, kind of going back to you or? teaching only in fields or on topics that you're an expert in, do you find then that um, for at least residents and medical students, which is kind of part of the Rams board and all of that, if residents shouldn't be leading sessions necessarily at conferences or leading small groups, because you're not, it would be hard to be an expert per se in, in a topic. It's a tough question, actually. So clearly, uh, residents need 
on some level to gain some experience in teaching, just in general, because that's such an important part of what we do for at least a segment of our um, practitioners. So most practitioners don't do a lot of teaching to other trainees in the community, like you just sort of finish and you do your thing and technicians. But a lot of us carry on teaching, and so the only way to cultivate that skill is to bring it into residency programs. So clearly residents have to have some teaching role. How that is executed is widely variant among residencies and can be done very poorly. As a second year emergency resident, to get up in front of a group that includes experienced attendings and talk about pericarditis is probably just not a good use of anyone's time. Second year emergency resident can become an expert on a very narrow topic. That's very important, but not widely disseminated. So, for example, tramadol has a lot of really important toxicities that are just not well known in general. Like there's a, people who are interested in this have been yelling about it for a long time, but it just hasn't really penetrated the community. A second year emergency resident very easily master that topic, like tramadol toxicities, in a way that is not known to anyone in that whole audience and deliver a great 20-30 minute lecture on tramadol that would cultivate teaching skills in that resident and also everyone would be engaged. You on some level leave the med students behind a little bit on that because what they want is a lecture on pericarditis. It's a challenge to uh, speak to on clinical topics to med students and experienced attendants. Just about everything clinically that an experienced attending is going to want to sit down and listen to is going to be over the head of a med student, obviously. So, so you have to make choices, but that's where I land on, on that question is that especially junior learners should, when they teach to a big group, should be focusing on very narrow topics that they can become an expert in in a matter of a week uh, or you know, 10 hours of prep or five hours of prep on everything there is to know about this little thing that is useful for other folks. To do a pericarditis review it's great for med students and it's great for a second year resident to do a pericarditis review, but the audience in that case should be med students, not in a Wednesday conference with a dozen attendees in the room who don't need to hear about the ECT progression in pericarditis. That's a great point. What do you feel having now done this Taught residents for a while is the best and the worst thing that residents do. Like, what's the worst thing you've seen, where you, or that residents make a habit of doing? I mean, the worst thing that you see routinely is um, residents making up stuff when you talk to them. Uh, never do it. Just don't do it. You can never predict what an attending is going to want. Like, everyone is different. It's, being a resident is essentially an impossible task because you're dealing with a zillion different attendings, each of them have their own style, want their own thing, have their own priorities, and you are not a mind reader. So you cannot know that in advance. It's best as you try to guess as you get to know your attendings, and clearly you're modifying your approach to every patient as you get to know your attendings according to what you think that attending is going to want. You don't have a choice in that because that's just the impossible position you're put in. But if I uh, am focused on one aspect of aortic dissection, and I ask you a question that relates to my particular fetish, aortic dissection, 
you do not ask the question of a patient. Um, do not say that you ask the question, do not answer the question. There is nothing more confidence-inspiring than a, uh, especially a junior resident who says, oh, I didn't, I didn't ask that, but I'll, I'll be happy to go back and ask it. I'll have to ask that. And when you say, I didn't ask that question, I don't know the answer to that question, what you are saying is, I am not going to lie to you. You can believe what I'm telling you. When you, when I ask strange questions, I can often know that they didn't ask that question. Because why would they? Because most people don't know about this little nuance of your intersection that I have to know about because it's one of my areas of interest. If I ask you about that and you answer it, and then I go back and you didn't ask, then I've lost a lot of, a lot of confidence in you, and uh, that makes my job harder. I don't want to lose confidence in you. I want to be a believer and not a doubter. Because when I'm a doubter, then I have to go back and repeat everything you do. I don't want to do that. It's kind of a pain for everyone. So if you didn't do a physical exam maneuver or a historical maneuver, just say you didn't do it. If you're habitually leaving out important elements of history and physical, that's something that needs to be addressed. But you don't address that by making um, it. So that's the worst thing, for sure. The best thing? Is that the other part of the question? It's a really tough question to answer. There's so many awesome things that residents do to surprise you all the time. I'm just going to be extremely sort of attending centric about this and say what's best for me. Just a narrow question. And the best thing that residents do for me on a daily basis is inspire me to have energy and love my job. And there is just nothing better than a resident who has not yet become cynical about all of the difficult things that we deal with and who is just so excited about their craft, about emergency medicine, about taking care of patients, who want to know everything, who want to do the best job they possibly can, and to experience that as someone who is 15 years out and has seen 10,000 patients with chest pain. It is a constant source of renewal and energy, and um, I'm really grateful that there are so many emergency doctors out there who do not want to work with residents and are happy to not work with residents because I do not want to take care of patients without residents because they are the ones who give me the energy to be my best all the time. I feel like it is hard to maintain your love for patients and your compassion for what you do when in residency. Do you find that it gets better? Well, there's some stuff that gets better, some stuff that's not better. The actual job itself gets, I think, significantly better because you're working a lot less in general. You're making a lot more. Also, you don't have to review your cases with anyone, which you're already now probably getting to the point where it's becoming a little bit of drag, and you kind of know what you want to do. Especially as you start finishing up, it's like, all right, uh, I don't need to review this case with this ending anymore. Like, uh, and um, it's frustrating. So there's many aspects that uh, improve. Big problem with getting out of residency is that when you're a resident, you have accepted that this is a period in your life that you are going to be working almost to the exclusion of everything else. And you just accept that that you're going to be working 80 hours a week or whatever, and you're just not going to have time to do a lot of the other things that you want to do with your life. Some folks can have kids during residency. A lot of folks can cultivate other things they're doing, but not really well. It's really hard to have a kid during residency, as, any, uh, as your colleagues will tell you, as you're about to do. Um, so 
that's a can be a real challenge because you're going to want to spend all this time with your child, and just are not going to be able to do that. So it's a significant sacrifice uh, on many levels. Once you're out, you're not training anymore. There's no like finish line. Like right now, you're like, well, I still have another year or whatever, and then I'm going to be able to sort of do what I want. But once you're out, this is it. This is your life. And so the problem when you get out is not the work itself, I think, for most people. It's all of the other demands that you've been sort of putting on. You put off as a resident, and you're just like, okay, I'll deal with that later. Now, later is now. And so when you feel overburdened with your three kids and your husband, and you know, you'd also like to read a novel one day, you know, maybe even write one, or at least read one. Not being able to accomplish all those things, not being able to do all the things that you want to do, is an acceptable situation in residency, but it becomes unacceptable uh, when you're out, and that becomes sort of the struggle. And that's my daily struggle. It's all my daily struggle. It's just like, you know, everything I do is great stuff. Like, every once in a while, I like, sit through some credentialing garbage where I like epic training, is the one that comes to mind. So, I've had to sit through like a number of hours of epic training, and it was a horrible waste of time. Horrible. It was absolutely horrible. But we spent so many years doing things like that. Like, just all day, like going to school, it's doing all the nonsense that we, this is a waste of time. It's just ridiculous. We're doing all these things that we do not like doing. And now, everything that I do essentially is something that I want to do, which is amazing. But there's just one problem. I just don't have enough time to do it all. Not even close. So, that's, just, that's the struggle. That's my struggle. I think that's most people in my position struggle. It's just, I need another six hours. I need 30 hours in the day. If I just had 30 hours, I could do it. Of course, that's a joke. If I had 30 hours, I would find another 100,000 things I want to do, and I wouldn't have time. You'd have another 45. Yeah, exactly. So there, it's just a, a, this sort of treadmill that we're on, and it's, uh, it's a great struggle to just prioritize and find time for the things that matter. Speaking, I guess, Kind of in terms of things that matter, is there a topic that now is more important to you in terms of emergency medicine? I know you recently published an article on pain management um, in the emergency department, and then I know you also worked in like ketamine and procedural sedation. Is there a topic now that's calling out to you? you know, more, yeah. I've migrated through a variety of domains in our specialty, and. and Really engaged in those domains. I started out, I think, really in airway, um, which is really mostly what I was just afraid of, and so I just ran towards it because I was really scared of it. So I wanted to become an expert. In it. And, that's, uh, and then from there, I got really interested in procedural sedation uh, because I just saw so much practice variation, and I was also got very nervous when I was making patients deeply unconscious, and so I wanted to be an expert in it. And there's been a, a number of other. Areas. I think the link has been pharmacology. I've just really been interested. It was my favorite course in med school by far. I love pharmacology, and I still love pharmacology. And so I got interested in ketamine just because it's pharmacology is just so awesome. And when I started getting interested in it and looking into it, no one was really using it, uh, with the exception of pediatric residual sedation. And that was it. No one was using it for any other indications. Adults were never getting it. There was no use of it for pain or anything else. Just been awesome to watch the explosion of that drug and the crazy pharmacology being harnessed in all these really interesting ways. In the airway domain, it became clear to me that, for example, rocuronium is just a much safer, better way to paralyze patients than 
Seth McCauley, and I sort of made that my mission to get the word out many years ago. Partially because of my efforts, it's been great to watch rock running go from like 5% of emergency department-based innovations now it's upwards of 50%. So that's been a huge success from my perspective. I'm more convinced than ever that uh, it's a much safer way to make patients. And my latest area of interest is also very pharmacology-based, and but was also born out of a problem that I, I couldn't feel like I, I didn't feel like I could solve uh, or wasn't managing well, and that had to do with people who use opioids every day, and they came to us often in pain or various other issues, and I just felt that the way I was managing these patients was not helping them. Well, I was trying to give them more opioids, basically Percocets or whatever, and it became obvious to me that this was not helping these people, even though that's what they thought they wanted. It was actually harming them. This became obvious to me intuitively, but I didn't have enough knowledge about what was actually going on. So I, I dived into that and uh, then found another really cool molecule, uh, buprenorphine, which in a lot of ways, like ketamine, it's just this crazy pharmacology that is not intuitive, but turns out is super awesome and just so happens to be uh, an extremely important tool to manage the most important public health crisis of our time. So that's been my focus for the past year or two, and I've been doing a lot of work to help other emergency docs use best practice strategies in managing people who have opioid addiction, who are addicted to opioids, and in preventing opioid addiction. That's where I'm spending most of my time at this conference and um, in general. Can you tell us some fun facts about yourself? What's your favorite candy? I'm a chocolate converter guy. So Reese's. So Reese's, Reese's, Pieces, Reese's Cups have been my go-to for many, many years. As my salary has increased, I've migrated towards more expensive versions of Reese's Pieces and Reese's Cups. Not that I don't still love them. My sort of go-to is I'll, I'll get like some really overpriced chocolate and dunk it into peanut butter myself. Just dunk the entire bar into a jar of peanut butter. And creamy peanut butter or like crunchy? Good question. Good question. So I'm fully in the creamy camp. Pretty strong on that one. Crunchy is okay if you're not dunking, but if you're already putting something crunchy like chocolate into the peanut butter, it just doesn't make sense to have all those peanut bits in your, your peanut butter. So pretty firmly in the creamy camp. And my peanut butter of choice is actually Smucker's Natural. The more natural ones that they don't have, they didn't seem to are too bitter or something. And then there's all the ones with sugar added, which you don't need if you're using it with chocolate. Yeah, so it's whatever most expensive chocolate is at the checkout stand dunked into Smucker's Creamy. And I have a hard time getting out of bed every morning. It's my entire life since I was a child. And when I wake up and I'm miserable every single day, I just think to myself, okay, get up. Okay. Any other questions? We'll leave it that way. Okay. All right. Well, we are so grateful for you for coming and talking to us. It's going to be a little bit better. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. It's a little pleasure.